Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the episode of today. Today is all going to be about self-esteem and purpose, why the two things are heavily linked and what you can do to increase your self-esteem by focusing on your purpose. And it's doing things around, you know, being of use, feeling useful and feeling relevant to what it is that you're doing. I'm going to break that down so you can understand how it ties heavily with both. I think purpose is one of the questions that I get that other than heartbreak and and self-love, our purpose is one thing that I get asked all the time about how do I find my purpose? How do I know it's the right thing? Um, how do I go looking for it when I've got no idea? And so I will be leaning into that. I have done episodes in the past around purpose specifically, but this is going to be leaning into that a bit and also about self-esteem and how your purpose directly links to your self-esteem and makes you feel a lot better about yourself and therefore improves your relationship with yourself. So that sounds to me, that sounds great. Hopefully that's enticed you enough to get excited about this episode. I'm going to be doing a brain fact. And of course, I've got a listener question at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for all that is to come. Uh, Life update. Honestly, life is great. But other than that, there's not that much more to say. I've just been doing a lot of work. I've been doing my 60-day challenge on myself, actually. So I thought I'd, that would be my life update. If you guys listened to the episode a couple of days ago, or slash maybe a couple of episodes ago, I did a 60-day challenge. And the challenge was around picking one thing that you were going to do for 60 days. And there can be no days off. And if you do take a day off, then you have to start back from day one. And the reason behind that is not because I don't think that you can't take a day off, but the, the point of this 60-day challenge is more for a mental strength challenge. So it's it's not saying that if you have a day off, you failed, but it's like it's about sticking something through and sticking it out and it keeps you super, super, super consistent. So I encourage people to you know pick something that's very achievable, relatively easy, but something that you you know that you don't already often do. So I actually have chosen two things for my 60-day challenge. One of them sounds ridiculous. And then I saw that someone posted this on the Facebook group and I'm like, hey, maybe I should talk about this because maybe I'm not the only one. So one of my challenges, I started the 60-day challenge after I redid my entire wardrobe because my wardrobe is 10% of the time stunning, 90% of the time a shit show with like balls of clothes thrown everywhere because I'll like try something on, change, 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 change. And before you know it, I've like put things in the wrong place and it's just like a shambles. So I went through my wardrobe. I pulled out heaps of stuff to give away. I, you know, tidied everything like crazy. Everything is so neat and it's so aesthetically pleasing. I was like multiple times that day I walked into my wardrobe just to look at it because it was so tidy and I was like, oh, this is just like bliss for the eyeballs. So the 60-day challenge there was I am not allowed to throw anything back in my wardrobe. Everything has to go back into the wardrobe in its place, folded properly. And on top of that, everything that I take off, like a sweater, shoes, whatever, has to go back into its place. I can't go to bed leaving something out. Not only does it have to go to the wardrobe, but in its place folded nicely or obviously in the wash. It is day six now. And I am sticking to it and I'm feeling so fucking good and I never want to go back to my old ways. Like it feels like I'm accomplishing so much by doing such a basic task. My mind feels clearer. I just love it. I'm a changed woman. The second one that I'm doing is that 
there's a gym in the building that I live in and I normally go to cl- – I love going to classes. I love doing runs, this, that. But given that my, the nature of my timetable, it's always a little bit all over the place. And I always exercise consistently. So I thought I'd add this one because it's a very easy one for me to do because I'm already relatively consistent. But it's to do 30 minutes. I'm gonna, I've been waking up at 5.30, sometimes earlier. But 5.30, I'll do a meditation. But then the challenge here is do 30 minutes at that gym. And – I can do whatever the fuck I want at the gym, but it's got to be 30 minutes. So it can be on the bike, it can be weights, it can just be a long stretch. It doesn't matter. So the pressure isn't on, oh, you've got to fuck yourself and smash yourself for those 30 minutes. It's literally just be in that gym for 30 minutes. And I've been doing such, I've been feeling so unbelievably good because I'll get a really good stretch. I've been stretching consistently. I've been doing just all sorts of things and I'm loving it. And I walk out of the gym, go home sometimes have a cold shower if I'm really in the zone and I'm starting my day before 7am and I just feel great. So they're my two 60 day challenge things. Um, The episode, the episode is the one that it's not about what you can do. It's what you will do. I think it's episode, it was two or three episodes ago. So go check that one out if you are interested and haven't already heard that episode. All right. Uh, let's get straight into the brain fact of today. The brain fact of today is going to be about reflexes and how the reflex arc works. So talking about reflexes and the reflex arc, the reason I'm talking about the reflex arc is because there's many different kinds of reflexes and the reflex arc is the most common one that occurs in the body. So that's the one that I will be focusing on. So a reflex, it happens both in your peripheral nervous system and in the central nervous system. But interestingly, it does not involve the brain, which when I found this out, I don't know when I found this out, but when I did, I actually thought that was pretty fascinating. So the brain is not needed for a reflex to be carried out, which you'd think it would be because all the processing, everything's happening within the brain. So how does this happen? So the, the re- And the reason why it happens is because the aim is for a really quick response to something. It's got to be a quick reaction to something. And by involving the brain, it would take longer to react. So the body has developed a system where it can react to something without needing conscious input from the brain. Okay. I'm going to talk about how that happens. Now, while reflexes do not involve the brain, they do involve the spinal cord and the information of what's happening in, in that reflex arc does get sent to the brain, but it doesn't involve input from the brain. It gets sent to the brain. So then the brain can obviously process that information and do something after the reflex is carried out, but it is not involved in the reflex being carried out. Now, examples of reflexes are things like pulling your limb away from a painful stimulus, like maybe something sharp or a cut or heat, like a flame. Balance, so when your balance is being thrown off, when you've been tipped off balance and you step to the side, that's a reflex. Uh, your, Your pupils dilating when the light goes dark and they have to dilate to allow more light to come in, that's a reflex. Uh, catching something as it's falling, ducking or crunching down when you hear a really loud bang, like flinching or twitching, uh, you know, getting ready to run away or whatever. And also the reflex test, you know, when you hit that part in your knee and you hit it and your leg kicks out, that is a, a reflex as well, obviously a test to test your how you know, the health of the spinal cord and things like that. And then even a sneeze or a cough is a reflex in response to a stimulus. So, Before every reflex, there must be a stimulus to cause this instant reaction. Otherwise, it's not a a reflex. So there has to be some sort of stimulus and then a response to that stimulus that is instant and that is what makes up a reflex. A reflex also has to be involuntary. 
in the way that you're not choosing or deciding to do it. It just happens. Your body is taking care of it before or at the same time that you're becoming consciously aware of it. And your body goes through a lot of involuntary processes like heart rate, blood pressure, all of that. But in the case of a reflex, this involuntary process is happening in response to a stimulus. So basically a reflex is an involuntary response to a stimulus. So let's break down the reflex arc, the one that I said is the most common one in the body. I'm going to use the example of you touching something like a a pin prick or something. That's the example I'm going to use. So your hand touches something sharp and you pull your hand away. When pain is felt on your fingertips, in this example, pain is felt on the skin, a single neuron detects it. The receptor detects this and it sends a signal down a single neuron and this neuron is carries all the way up through the length of the arm to the spinal cord and it arrives at the spinal cord via something called the dorsal root. So it enters to the back of the spinal cord, the dorsal part of the spinal cord via the dorsal root. And yes, it sounds crazy that it is one neuron from your fingertip all the way to the spinal cord, but that is what it is neurons and nerves can be quite long. Now, it's entering the back of the spine, that is dorsal. Any sensory neurons, all sensory neurons, enter through the back of the spinal cord, which is the dorsal part of the spinal cord through the dorsal root. And then any motor neurons come out of the front of the spinal cord, which is the ventral roots. Now, to remember dorsal and ventral, dorsal means back, from the Latin word dorsum, and ventral means front from the Latin word venter or venter, which means belly or abdominal area. Now, to remember this, just a quick little what what I use if if this is if you're doing anatomy and you find this useful. So at uni, you've got to remember like dorsal, ventral, anterior, posterior, caudal, rostral, all of these positionings when you're talking about anatomy, especially well, very much in neuroscience, I'm sure with any anatomy. So the way I would remember dorsal, ventral, dorsal, I would think of a dorsal fin on a shark's back. That would remind me it's the back. And ventral, I would think of um, you know, when you ventilate breathing and the chest, the chest goes out. So I would think ventral, ventilate chest. So that's how I would remember front, back, dorsal, ventral. That's my little thing. Everyone's got their own way of remembering shit in anatomy, I am sure. Anyway, so you've got this single neuron. It is the sensory neuron. It's collected the information and it's come all the way up through the dorsal root into the dorsal part of the spinal cord. This is called the afferent path. And it acts upon and fires on the receiving neuron. So it enters the spinal cord and then it sends a signal to the next neuron. And this next neuron is called an interneuron or it's also known as a relay neuron. This interneuron is this very short neuron within the spinal cord, very short like length of a neuron. And then that interneuron acts on or sends a, sends a message on the efferent neuron, which is a motor neuron. And this motor neuron then sends a signal down to, in this case, the bicep in the arm, because we're talking about your fingers just touched a like pin prick or, or you know, a painful stimulus. It sends a message to the bicep in the arm and it contracts the bicep. And this contraction causes the limb to pull away from that painful stimulus. So there is your reflex. Now that interneuron, that middle neuron that I was talking about, 
At the same time that it sends the message to the efferent neuron, which is your motor neuron, it also sends a signal up to the brain as well to let the brain know that this is happening, whether you like it or not, this reflex is happening. So the brain then becomes aware as the reflex is occurring, but it's not taking part in this reflex occurring, if that makes sense. And the reason for this is simply survival. You know, milliseconds matter when in, in when it comes to survival or when it comes to burning your skin or when it comes to a cut being deeper, something being more dangerous. So to, for something to travel all the way up through the spinal cord, go through all the processing centers of the brain, make a decision of what has to be done and then send it all the way back down to the limbs can take a second or more and that might take too long. So that... Reflex arc involves the afferent neuron, which is the sensory neuron. It involves the interneuron, which is like that linking one that tells the motor neuron, which which is the efferent neuron. So afferent and efferent, the motor neuron. And then that interneuron also sends a message up to the brain. That is the reflex arc. And this whole thing is able to take place on its own, which is really remarkable. Now, that's the basic version of the reflex arc. There are some reflex arcs that have less neurons involved, less than three neurons. Uh, some have way more than than three neurons. For example, certain balance, if you're looking at balance reflexes, it's going to need more than certain neurons because in order to contract a muscle in the leg, you also have to relax another muscle and then you've got to be relaxing and contracting muscles in the other leg so you're not bending both knees and straightening. So there are certain reflexes that will require more than just the three neurons, depending on which muscles they're trying to, like which nerves are trying to innovate. Uh, But yeah, the reflex arc is the the basic version of it is these three neurons. So that is the reflex. Good times. Hopefully that was interesting. Let's get straight into the topic of today. So probably the first thing that I wanted to start talking about is purpose because like I said at the start of this episode, I get asked about that often. How do you find your purpose? How to find it? How to know it's your purpose? How to start looking for what your purpose is? where to look for it, and what if you've tried and you can't find it. Purpose is something that everybody has the ability of accessing. So sometimes the people with the simplest idea of what their purpose is are the happiest. I think we complicate it so much in our heads and the simpler the better, but we just complicate it so much because we add all these ideas around what purpose should look like based around how other people are going to perceive it and what they're going to think. But a purpose is very, very personal and very specific to you. And in most cases, the best ones are where it's really fucking basic, really basic. It's not about changing the world It's just something really basic that is your why every day that is one of the things, a major thing that fuels you. And you can have this one thing that keeps you going every single day, gets you out of bed, gets you excited. It's your, it's your thing. It's your purpose. And it makes not sense to the person, like it doesn't make sense to the person who's next to you. And it doesn't fucking matter. That's the beauty about purpose. It has to matter to you and to nobody else. Your purpose is relevant to how it makes you feel. Now, self-esteem, what is self-esteem? Esteem, the word esteem, means respect and admiration. So self-esteem is self-respect and self-admiration. And it's this value that you place on yourself. And it's about how you perceive yourself and how you perceive that value that you've placed on yourself. So what I've done is I've broken, as usual, this episode down into four points that I'm going to kind of talk through around how you can link purpose 
to your self-esteem and how you can make yourself feel better and why it's so heavily linked. Number one, you need to be of use to others around you, to society, to nature, to people, to your community. Make yourself useful. That is how you create value for yourself. When you feel valuable, when your value is needed and you're putting that value to good use, then you have a purpose. And that is self-esteem as well, or a big part of it. When people feel that they're not of use to others, to the community, that's when they start to get depressed. When older people stop working and stop contributing to something greater, their brain degenerates a lot faster. It's this whole, if you don't use it, you lose it. If you don't use what you have to offer, you lose it. And being useful is this feeling of, of having a purpose in something greater than yourself. And when I was at, in my master's, doing my master's, there was this um, one of the lecturers came in because we'd have a different lecturer every week. And one of the lecturers came in and she worked, one of her main things that she worked on was studying centenarians, so people older than 100 years old in Australia. And there was this common theme with all of them one of them was that they would wake up relatively early at a consistent time. So they had a, a routine. They all had a community of friends. They were all quite social and not necessarily a thousand friends, but they all had their group of friends and they would socialize on a very regular basis. It was at, at least three times a week. And they all still worked. Some of them was just part-time. Some of them was volunteer work. One of them was still a full-time accountant in his office and didn't even use like proper accounting software. He still used books and pens and stuff. But he was a full-time accountant and he was like 105, right? So all of them were really happy. All of them had this zest for life. All of them, when interviewed, would talk about how they just feel that they've got, you know, plenty of time left, you know. And this is because they all felt valuable. They all felt that they were useful to those around them. And because they made themselves useful, that contributed to their feeling of happiness and their feeling of self-esteem. Because when you have high self-esteem, you're happy. You're happier because your perceived value is higher. And when you know that you're contributing to something, to anything, you can get out of your head, that voice in your head, and you can get involved and you can find meaning behind something. You can find connection and the things that worry you about yourself and about your so-called shortcomings and flaws start to fade away because you're contributing and you're putting your energy and your thoughts and your attention to something outside of you, which can be really, really beneficial. Number two, this brings me to number two. Bring the focus out. Focus on things outside of you. Now, this is not saying like, oh, you've got to be selfless and only focus on, on things that are not you. But it's, I'm talking about it in a way of shifting your focus point. When you're someone with a lot of self-esteem issues, problems, you're going to be in your head and be very critical and judgmental about yourself. And you're going to, you know, comparison will start creeping in. All these things are going to creep in. And you know, about what you do and what you're not doing. And, and when you try and do things, when you have this critical voice in your head, this judgmental voice, it's going to feel clunky. It's not going to flow. It's not going to feel effortless. 
when you've when you're in your head. That's what I mean about being in your head. When this voice is overriding your every action and everything about you instead of things happening organically. It's when you are going to the bathroom and instead of just brushing your teeth, doing your routine, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, tearing yourself apart. You know, when when you go on your phone instead of just, you know, using social media as a social tool, you're you're just horrified at that you're not living up to these other standards that other people are living at. It's when you do a work task, you think people are not going to accept this. This is ridiculous. I'm a fraud. This is shit. I've got to start again. It's just not believing in yourself. It's this critical voice. And then when you're actually doing the task, you're not, you're just focusing on how you're going to fail or how it's not going to do well or how you're not as good as the other people around you. So then you don't even give yourself the best chance to actually complete that task to the best of your ability. This could happen with an exam, with, with a work assignment, with any physical task that you're setting out to do with anything, with art, anything. But when you shift your attention and you do something, when you contribute to something, to something, you know, to the greater good or to assist someone else or to lead someone else or to, you know, nurture something, a garden, an animal, a person, when you do that, when you teach, whatever it is, your insecurities, when in that moment, become really, really small because the focus isn't there. You're thinking, how can I be of assistance? Um, how can I help? How can I be useful? How can I motivate? How can I inspire? How can I entertain? Your level of care and empathy goes up for others and your attention is evenly spread out between you when you need it but also the outside world and how you can be a part of that. So then it's no longer you just in your head focusing on and criticising everything that you're not happy with about yourself. You, instead of, it's not that you instantly become happy with everything that you weren't happy about. It's that the focus just isn't there anymore and you start to feel useful. You start to feel valuable and important because you become something, a part of something greater than you, bigger than you, outside of you. And when you do something that feels useful, where you feel genuinely useful, a different side of you comes out. And it's that part of you that feels like, oh, fuck, I, I just would never get sick of doing this. I feel fulfilled when I do this thing. And we all know the feeling of being fulfilled. It's a very, very easy feeling to identify. It's very unique and it feels refreshing. It feels happy. It feels light. It feels weightless. It feels exciting. We've all had that feeling at some point. Some people get it all the time. Some people have had like little drips and drubs of it in their life and it feels fucking good when you feel fulfilled with something that you're doing. It feels at the end of the day that you've got nothing left that you have to do. It's that feeling at the end of the day when you're like, I feel fucking good. And often it's because you've contributed to something. You've felt useful. You've felt that you've, you've used your time properly on this earth on that day and then you've got – you know, by the end of the day, you're like, I feel good. I want to just chill now. I want to relax. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's not because you've slogged it out at the office, you you know, beating a dead horse. Or it's not because you've, you know, worked so hard and, and, you know, worked yourself into the ground. It's because you felt useful and there's a difference. Number three, be interested and find areas where you can be relevant or you can find relevance. So what I mean by this is, let's take an example. Look at elite athletes, and I'm using athletes for a specific example here because athletes in general, not in all sports, but in general, have a, quite a short shelf life as far as the, the length of their career. 
the careers have a short shelf life. So, so like a lot of athletes, professional athletes, they're really big. They they play a really big role in that sport. They're really well known. Some of them celebrity status. They're treated like royalty. When they retire, a lot of them, not all, have a crisis because they don't feel relevant to what their purpose was and they also don't feel useful in that same sense. Their identity or what they identified with and as is now essentially gone and that purpose that they had feels like it's gone too and they struggle to find it because they feel that what they were useful at and what they were known for and what their identity was is not relevant anymore. And another example for this is some parents, usually this usually happens with mothers, but parents who revolve their entire life around raising the children and make that their identity, when their kids then leave home, they'll struggle to let go and find their own happiness and a kind of happiness that's not attached to their children's lives and what their children are doing and their children's activities. So some parents' happiness completely revolves around their kid's life, which is not healthy for them as an individual because kids are going to need you less and less and less while you're probably going to, if you're someone who's depending on them to make you happy, you're going to need them more and more and more. So it's not a good balance and it's also not healthy because your children note this or the children note this and then they're going to start to feel responsible for your happiness and guilty when they can't do anything about it, which, you know, is no one's responsibility especially not your kids. So while they're out there learning, growing and barking on their adult life, doing all of that, that's when you're going to need them the most if you're in that situation. Another example is a lot of people as they age and, and get older and older, they create this separation between themselves and the generations below them, the younger generations. What a perfect way to feel irrelevant. And then they say, oh, old people are invisible. But if older generations, and this is a, uh, something that happens all the time, and I, I promise myself that I'm not going to do this as I get older. I, like, I will honestly <laughs> like, promise myself that I will not do this. But a lot of older generations, people in older generations, think that everything the younger generation does is ridiculous. Oh, that's ridiculous. That, oh, they're doing that now. Oh, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Everything's a joke. So, of course, there's going to be a divide. Generations have to lead by example. So... It's great when you see people from older generations involving themselves into things that is more commonplace for younger generations. It keeps them relevant. They stay relevant and people gravitate to them. And then because they're gravitating to them, they're not invisible. I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, once you reach this age, you become invisible. But I know many role models that are older that are extremely relevant because they make themselves relevant. They connect with people in the younger generations. They learn from people below them and above them age-wise and laterally. You know, it's all about finding relevance where you can, finding ways to still stay relevant and adapt with the times. If you think, oh, those were the times, those were my days, now I'm old, now that's whatever. Or if you think, oh, my glory days was when I was in that career, now, you know, no one needs me now, I'm useless, then you're going to feel that way and then you're less likely to be reaching out and finding things where you can maintain that connection, that, like your, your finger on the pulse between you and the rest of your community and the rest of society. 
Your purpose can be ever-evolving. Your purpose doesn't have to be the same thing today that it is the day you die. Your purpose can can you can have a it could change meaning every 10 years if you want. But you've got to be adaptable and you've got to be interested and you've got to be willing to learn and you've got to be willing to be the shittest one in the room at a task. You've got to be willing to, you know, be taught. And then you can teach other people. It's this idea of how do I maintain my relevance so I can stay connected, which leads me to my fourth one, which is get out of your space and connect with the outside world. This is the best way to feel useful and therefore have higher self-esteem and therefore feel like you have a purpose. A lot of our self-esteem comes from how much purpose we feel or how useful we feel. So, so much of that therefore, is within your control. Because if you're someone who's sitting there and a lot of negative things have happened to you and you haven't felt comfortable to be vulnerable and put yourself out there, then it makes sense that you might feel like you, you have to compare yourself to everyone around you and you've got to look at, oh, what that person's doing with their life and what they're achieving here and what they're achieving there. And then you start getting really critical with yourself. Then you start feeling in comparison to the people around you that you're not doing much and that your value's pretty low and then your self-esteem goes down and then your self-love goes down and then it's kind of this like spiral that keeps feeding itself. But you can always adapt just because you're not needed anymore in one career. It doesn't mind that you can't provide value in another area. You know, your value can change and where you add value in your society, in society, in your community, where you add value will change depending on where it is that you work or who is under your care at the time or, or who you're influencing at the time. But it's important to stay dynamic and find where you can shift your value. If your purpose was raising children at the, when the kids were young, what can you do once they leave the house that can shift after the fact where you are going to feel valuable again? Is it related to caring and nurturing? Because it can be and that's great. Or is it something completely different that you've wanted to do but you've never thought about doing? That's also great. If your purpose was being a rugby player and that was your fame and identity, then what's it going to be after you retire? You could mentor or you could do something completely different that you've always had an interest in. But it's, you don't, it doesn't have to be concrete. You just have to continue being – have your finger on the pulse, get outside. So I feel like point three and point four are very heavily intertwined, which is you know being relevant and also getting out and connecting with the outside world. If you occupy yourself with things of substance, then you're not going to feel like your life has passed you by. If you're someone who once you retire – you sleep in every day, you really slow things down, you stop connecting with your community outside of you, you stop socialising, you're going to fade away into nothing. And then, then you're going to be like, I'm invisible. Of course you're fucking invisible. You're no longer involved. You're not interacting. You're not, and it sounds mean, but you're not of use. And it's not to say that you're not valuable as an individual, but what is your usefulness in society? Everyone 
can be made useful in society. And that's when you feel good. That's what communities are built around. That's what people have this innate need to be part of a community and feel useful. If you remove yourself from that and you don't contribute at all, then you feel shit about yourself and then you feel useless because no one needs you because they're not using you or your resources or your skills or or what you have to teach. You can always find a way to be useful and it doesn't have to be with humans. It can be with nature. It can be with animals. So if you're not a social person, that's okay too. So start thinking about if you're someone who's really down on themselves right now, pause those thoughts, put that aside. You can revisit that whenever the fuck you want because our brains are like that. It has no issue revisiting those, you know, really critical thoughts. But for fun, entertain yourself and think, what are ways that I could be useful? That's literally why I started my podcast because I thought I didn't even look at the podcast as a career for myself at the start. I thought every time I – like and people would say to me, oh, my God, you get so excited when you talk about the brain. And I was like, oh, I fucking love it. You know, maybe if I started a podcast or a YouTube channel and, and I just spoke about it and I shared what I was learning, I knew that I would feel really good in myself and it would be of service to other people because people would gain something from it. But I thought maybe I'll reach like a handful of people, but I'll be learning and it'll help me learn. These people will be learning. I'll get to talk about something that I'm really excited while teaching them something. They'll gain something out of it. And I was like, this is unbelievable. This is what I want to do. So is there something that you could share with someone? Is there something that you're good at that you could maybe help someone who's wanting to do what you're good at? but has no idea where to start and you can just reach out and be like, hey, I'll help you. And you can even charge money for it. I'm not saying you're not a charity. You could do it for free if you want, but you can charge for it too. So that's where sometimes your purpose can tie into your career if you want, but it doesn't have to be. And that shouldn't be the, the intent behind it. You know, your purpose should be something of how can I be of use that makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing something of, sub, with sub, of substance with my time. Another great way, because it doesn't have to be about directly helping someone, like physically helping them do this thing or, you know, doing charity work. Another great way is, you know, are you funny? Can you make people laugh? That's a great contribution. Entertainment has always been, for thousands of years, a great way of contributing. Can you entertain? Can you lighten the load of someone's mind for a little bit? You know, can you support someone emotionally? Are you really good at uplifting people? Are you really good at making people feel loved? My first ever episode on finding your purpose was nearly two years ago, I think. And it was around the time that my auntie had passed away and I spoke about purpose and I spoke about her, my auntie Belinda, because she had this amazing ability to make everybody that she met feel really loved by her. She was the warmest person and you never left an interaction with Belinda thinking, "Uh you just felt so loved. She was so warm and so loving and it was amazing. Is that you? And that's a great way of doing something, you know, meaningful with your time where you're useful. People feel warm and happy and better after they've interacted with you. That's a great fucking thing to do. But if you're passive and oh, this has all happened to me, woe is me, all these things are happening to me, I might as well, it's done, I'm retired, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know. If you're passive and you stop taking action and you stop being of use, then you're going to feel useless, not because you are useless, but because you're not contributing your resources that you know you have and they're not being put to good use. What good is potential if it's sitting on the couch scrolling on a phone? 
It's no good. So potential is only so good. It's what you do with that potential that matters. It's no good saying, oh, I could go this direction. I could go that direction. I could. There's all these things I could be doing if you're not actually going to follow through with it. And that's why people feel, you know, uh, um, what's it called? Paralysis by analysis. Because you overthink something instead of just starting something. And when you start something, you are allowed to stop. You are allowed to quit. You are allowed to divert your attention to another thing or go down a different path if you want. Starting something doesn't mean a death sentence. You're stuck here forever. Same as with anything, a relationship, a job, when you've moved somewhere. It just means you've started the momentum. And then once you start that momentum, you can still steer it in any direction you want to go. But when you start, you start feeling useful. You start learning more about yourself and then it becomes easier to know what you want and what you don't want and what feels like purpose and what doesn't feel like purpose. But not doing anything, you're never going to know what feels like purpose or your purpose. It's impossible because there's no, there's no momentum. I think that when you feel disconnected from the world and from others and intimacy towards others, you start to feel like there's, you know, there's not much purpose and everything in life feels like an uphill battle. But your value towards yourself will increase significantly. Your self-esteem will increase significantly when you work on being useful and that then becomes your purpose. The value that you put on yourself will increase. And when you see that your actions are making a contribution, big or small, it feels better than you can imagine. And that feeling, when you see that your contributions, you know, are having an impact on anything, anyone, and that feeling that you get, that's your purpose. Do it often. Do it all the time. Do it weekly. Do it daily if you can. And you'll notice that you'll get out of your head and you're going to get more involved in the world outside you and nothing beats that. Because if you think back to those centenarians that I was talking at the start of the episode where, you know, they were still working and, and the jobs they were doing, there was nothing outrageously wild, but they all had a purpose. They were contributing. They were still working. They were contributing to the dynamic of their friendship groups. They were socializing. They were making other people feel good. So just being a part of your community and engaging and interacting and being there for people and doing your job and doing it well and feeling like you're contributing, that could just, just that is a great purpose to have. And you can then grow on that. That can expand as much as you want it to. So hopefully that has planted a seed in your head. And if you're someone that does struggle with self-esteem, then I encourage you to try these things. I encourage you to, you know, find ways and do a little inventory, write down an inventory, where am I really useful? What are my skills? And not just career-wise, but just all around. What do I know I'm good at? It could be that you're funny. It could be that you're, you know, really good at organizing, like really fucking good at organizing. And you could say, you know, to your friends, hey, I noticed, you know, that this was all over the place. I'll help you. I'll fucking help you organize that. You know how much time you're going to save. And then you feel great when you do that. Or you can start a YouTube channel teaching people like me how to be organized. So, you can apply any skill, any skill and feel useful when you apply it. So that is the episode of today, self-esteem and purpose and why it is all linked. All right, now it's time for our listener question of the day. Now, this listener question really hit me hard. When I was reading it, I got really emotional. And then when I was reading it out loud and recording it, I actually had to stop because I 
teared up at one point because I was just feeling so many feelings and, you know, just frustration and pain on your behalf. So I just get very emotionally invested in your stories when you write in. And yeah, Uh, anyway, this is the listener question and thank you so much for, for sending it through. Let's get straight into it. Hi, Alexis. Discovering you and listening to your podcasts, just so you know, has literally changed my approach to life. I love your no bullshit straight from the hip approach. So don't hold back on me, please. I'm 57. I'm a 57 year old mother, wife, and now grandmother to two beautiful little girls. I was raised in a very religious home. My father was determined to take Christianity to everyone in our community to the embarrassing point for us kids. My mother has been the ever dutiful wife, never challenging her husband that I remember. As a young girl, I was sexually abused by a worker on our farm and my maternal grandfather. For most of my life, I thought I had managed this start to my life, telling myself that it's all my problem, pushed it under, never confided in anyone. I've always been challenged by my relationship with my father and also my mother because she never questioned my father. Until recently, I thought it was because of the way I was and I'm not very close with either parent. I have never had a mother-daughter relationship that I would love to have. I did raise the abuse once with my parents, once when I was in a bad place. They have never addressed it with me again, especially, this especially hurts as my mother's father was one of the perpetrators. Uh, My method of management has been to work hard physically, push myself and usually overcommit, give a lot to others. I'm a people pleaser and not get too close to people. No besties for me. My husband knows and I shared all with him when our two daughters were very young and I was overly protective about who they were allowed to be babysit by, basically nobody. We have a healthy, high-achieving family and I work hard on my relationship with my children and their partners and grandchildren and I want the type of relationship with my children that they will come to me, confide, share all the moments, happy, sad, just daily chat, something I didn't have with my parents. Sorry, something I don't have with my parents. I have a good job based on my focus to work hard at myself professionally and personally in the last few years. I feel valued, appreciated while at work. I have recently been offered an opportunity to progress to a new role and they are actively pursuing me, a nice feeling that someone sees huge value in what I can add to their business. My marriage of 33 years has been turbulent at best. My husband has made it very clear that I am the love of his life and and he is a very good father to our children. However, he is very judgmental, critical of everyone, usually before he has even met them. Unlike my mother, I challenged him initially and he didn't like that. We had some pretty good battles in the early years. He is dominant, outspoken, likes to command centre stage at all gatherings. Although I'm a critical part of our joint business, I feel unvalued, like I have no voice and most of my thoughts slash ideas are belittled or rubbished before I've even finished trying to get an opinion. There is no friendship. There is no listening on his part, only judgment. And so I don't try to share anymore. Conversation starts and stops at what the kids are up to, how many bills to pay, etc. I've learned to pick my battles and I've finally admitted to myself that I don't like him as a person, don't love him, but for our family's sake, we'll stay. Ten years ago, I met a man who did everything my husband doesn't. I had an affair and for the first time I felt heard and appreciated. I made a call not to continue And although I try very hard not to dwell and move on, I know how wonderful it is when a relationship is mutually beneficial. I also made the mistake of telling my husband, there's no coming back from that decision as he uses this against me continuously, threatens with all sorts of retributions if I ever leave. However, I am owning it. What I did was a mistake. I broke trust and it was wrong and I've hurt so many people in the process. My grandfather has passed away and apologized to me on his deathbed. The ex-farm worker lives in our district and knows 
and knows I live here. No matter how hard I try, even passing his house jogs memories. I see little girls playing in his yard. What if my silence is enabling him to continue and I rebuke myself for not reporting him? But it was so long ago. My father is on his deathbed now. Will I have regrets if I don't try and close this out with him and mum? The state of my own mind is a constant battlefield. My state of well-being is a cyclic roller coaster. The lows come often and suicidal thoughts are just one argument or a bad, night, bad night's sleep away. I work hard on wellness steps every day. You help. I don't want this to affect my ongoing relationship with my children and grandchildren. Any words of wisdom from you would help, Alexis. Thank you. Okay, so that is obviously extremely intense what you've gone through in your past and what you're currently going through. I just want to say before anything else, that with the affair, I think it's really easy to instantly turn the person who's had an affair into the villain. But there's a lot of situations, and this is not me saying, go and have an affair, it's all fine to have an affair. But there is a lot of situations and marriages and um, relationships where things are just have not been good for a very long time. Someone is not valued. Someone is not appreciated. And for many reasons outside of directly the relationship, the people do stay together. And then they're just not getting any of their emotional needs met whatsoever. They almost feel trapped. And then an affair is an opportunity for them to feel the love that they've been craving and not ever been feeling or to feel heard or, you know, to have affection and to have someone laugh with them and you know it and when that happens you have to realize that at the end of the day we're only humans who need our basic needs met and part of our basic needs to be met are emotional needs it's not just food and water a human need is to feel truly connected by and 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 it's separate to your children and it's separate it's it's this it's an intimacy that you have with a partner and often when you don't get that in a marriage, especially a long marriage and one where there's no romance or love or, you know, you're not even discussing anything outside of your children, then, you know, I just don't want you to feel like such a villain in this scenario about the affair because while you were the one that took action on the affair, clearly your husband is extremely responsible for the deterioration of this marriage as well. So while he's not responsible for the affair, he's, he's, got, he's you know, hands are not clean when it comes to who is responsible for the marriage not, not doing well. And I think for you, it would have been even harder because you said that you don't let anyone come close to you. You don't even have best friends. So I feel like this is even more of a reason why you would have gravitated to this affair because you're getting this this connection with someone who's at your level. It's not something that you could, you know, you can't have that kind of connection with your family. So I feel like you've, when it when it comes to a lot of relationships in your life, you've drawn the short stick in a lot of things. You know, you didn't have that with your parents and you had some very, hor- actually the opposite, you had horrible, horrible situations occur with your parents. And I feel like when you mentioned that you're a people pleaser, that, you know, makes a lot of sense because... I feel like based on what you've told me, you were always in a position where your parents never validated your feelings. You know, you had, you opened up to your parents about being abused and they never brought it up again. Like that's beyond comprehension. And that would have caused you likely to completely want to shut everyone out because it's like, I can't open up. 
I can't get people close. If I'm going to get hurt, then I feel like I'm the one who's punished for being the one who was hurt. So you've got this kind of awful pattern that's occurred where there's just you, – you're not confiding, you can't trust in people and it's this pain that happens. And then you find this window where you meet someone who is all of the opposite of that, everything that's, you know, good in a person and then unfortunately you end it because you're trying to do the right thing. So I don't want you to feel like a villain in this situation. I don't want you to feel bad for the affair because I feel like there's a lot of history that ha- that has happened before that. I also feel like the marriage that you have is not representative of what a marriage should look like. And this is one of those those situations where a lot of people stay in the marriage because of the kids and there is no other reason you're staying in that marriage. This is if you didn't have children – the question always has to be, if you didn't have children, would you stay with him? If there wasn't a legal piece of paper saying, I am married to this person, would you stay with him? And it doesn't matter if he says that you're the love of his life. I don't give a fuck. Is he the love of yours? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Is he, you know, because you're 57. That's young. You have decades left of your life, decades left of your life. And you can hit that reset button at any point in your life. You, this, you, you're a driven person and there's so much that you can do and you've had so many fucked things happen in your past that if anyone deserves it, it's you. And if anyone deserves to be loved, it's you. And if anyone deserves to have you know, a loving experience in their life. But instead, you were in a situation where you felt that you couldn't pursue that, that you had to then shut it down. So you've had it, you found it, it was great, but then you had to shut it down. And not only did you shut it down, but you were honest and open about it and now that's being rubbed in your face, which, mind you, is a form of manipulation because there's nothing wrong with your partner wanting to discuss the fact that you had an affair independently. And I've spoken about this before. If you've had an affair and then your partner, you and your partner have decided to to, okay, the affair's done, we've decided to stay together, we've decided to work through it, then the only time that your partner should be bringing up the affair is when it's to bring up the affair in the sense of they're like, listen, I'm having a moment where I'm feeling a bit unsettled about it. Can we talk about it? I've got some questions or can you just make me feel a bit at ease? And that's kind of how you work through the trust again. But if you go and do something that – or if he does something that you disagree with and you raise it with him and then he throws the affair in your face, then – then he's got the upper hand until the day you die, if that's the case. And that's just completely inappropriate because people make mistakes, people make missteps. And when you look at marriages, the idea of, you know, in the whole marriage to have feelings for somebody else, I know people don't like to talk about it, but that fucking, that's very common. And a lot of people don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. But affairs or having feelings for someone else when you're in a relationship is extremely common and it does not make you a bad person. Yes, you went behind his back. Yes, you did something that hurt him. And yes, it's something that you want to work through. But if he's made the decision to stay with you and you've made the decision to stay with him, for him to throw it in your face all the time, that's not helping anyone. And it's certainly not helping him or the relationship. All it does is it puts him in a position of power, which aligns with his personality based on what you've said. He's dominant, outspoken, likes to command, blah, blah, blah. So he's using this as an opportunity to assert more dominance over the relationship and over you. So I I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do about your marriage, but 
I don't know if you are even thinking about leaving the marriage or what you would do about your relationship, but one thing that you need to remind yourself every day is that you 100% deserve to be loved by someone that loves you properly, okay? Not who controls you, not who thinks that they own you, but someone who loves you the way love should be given, okay? As far as your relationship with your parents – You owe them as much as you want to owe them, which should be nothing. And if you have a relationship with them, it should purely be because you want to. And if you don't want to have a relationship with them, then you should not have to. You have to get to a point in your life where you have to put yourself first. And I'm gathering that that's not something that you ever do. And it needs to start now because not much is going to change for you until you start putting yourself first. And there's fucking, you know, no time like the present to do that. And part of putting yourself first means eliminating some relationships in your life or distancing yourself from certain relationships in your life. And whether that's something you want to do or not, that's a decision that only you can make. But a lot of your pain has come from not feeling heard or validated by the people that are supposed to hear you and validate you the most, which are your parents, as you would know, because you are a parent. I feel like there's a lot of relationships in your life that you have because you feel like you have to have them. You feel like there's a duty to continue these relationships in your life. And I just feel like that's never going to ultimately make you happy. And it's also not going to make the people around you happy because, you know, you prolonging a relationship that's not healthy for the sake of the family, that's not going to make your family happier that you're miserable. and all this stress that you have, you know, these bad nights, all of that, that's, that's only made harder when you're involved in, you know, unfulfilling relationships. So I think to better your relationships and to keep things going really well with your children and your grandchildren, the most important thing is to work on the relationship with yourself. And that is drawing boundaries and, you know, drawing distances between people that aren't serving you. And you mentioned that after the affair, you had broken the trust and it was wrong and you've hurt so many people in the process. The person that was hurt the most in the process would have been you. And I feel like you've just, you've had so many series of being hurt in your life and you've had no one that you can truly rely on. And so you kind of feel like you're on your own in this. And that's probably why you're suffering so much and why you're hurting so much because you're exposing yourself to relationships that are not making you feel safe and not making you feel heard and trusted and loved. And that to me is what you have to focus on the most. So like I said, I can't tell you what to do with your marriage. I've only got like a one email insight into it, but in my opinion, that's fucking unhealthy and it's so unfair that you're in this situation. I just think it's really, really unfair and I hate that you're in that situation and I feel like a lot of people think, oh, well, it's fine, but what's fine? That you spend the rest of your life doing something that you're not happy that you spend the rest of your life. Like it's not fine. It's not fine. 57 is so young. It's so fucking young and there's you have a whole brand new life ahead of you if you want and you can be riding that reset button as often as you want and there's you, you, like you see people restart – you know, a brand new life and completely transform how they feel and, you know, their happiness and their moods in the span of a year. And that is available to you. 
So I think your main thing now is draw some boundaries, tell the people that need to be told to get fucked, tell them to get fucked. Um, definitely start putting yourself first. If you need whatever you need to say to your father on his deathbed, say it. And if you don't want to say it, then don't. It's completely up to you. It's got nothing to do with him anymore. It's what's going to make you feel good, okay? That's the most important thing. Those are the things you need to do. And you have to always remember that people are not going to love you more because you've been a martyr and you've suffered for the sake of everyone else. So you need to start putting yourself first because putting yourself last does not make people love you more, unfortunately, or probably fortunately. So you have to start changing what you are prioritizing in your life or things are not going to get better for you. And I really hope that they do start getting better for you because there's a lot, you've got a lot going for you. You just need to tap into that. Guys, that is the episode of today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sending in your stories. I really, really appreciate it and I really do. Um, I'm very grateful that I get to have an insight into your lives and I get to read these stories. So that is all for today. As always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.